Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Our guest today boasts a long and successful career in sports journalism. Hired as the ABC's first full-time female sports broadcaster, she's also delved into comedy, music and news on radio and television. She's with us today to reflect on more than three decades of sports journalism. Today's trailblazer is Debbie Spillane. Welcome, Debbie Spillane. How are you today? Great, Steph. Long time no talk. <laughs> it's been far too long. Now, your Twitter handle refers to you as a recovered sports journalist slash broadcaster. However, it feels like just yesterday you were still on the airwaves. What have you been up to since you hung up the mic? Well, it's coming up to... Well, it's actually over five years. I can't believe I, that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I went off on long service leave and then I was, was planning to retire later that year and then I got retrenched while I was on long service leave. So, you know, so I finished in February thinking I'd be back at least for the second half of the year five years ago, but no... Uh, but it I mean, look, it's worked out fantastically. I'm I moved up to the mid north coast, which I'd already decided to do, and yeah, just been living a quiet and and very a much smaller life, and I actually feel really really happy with that. Oh, it sounds absolutely delightful. But tell me, after spending such a large part of your life concentrating very hard on what was going on in the sporting landscape, the minutiae, if you like. How liberating is it to be able to dip in and out of whatever you feel like watching? It's it's amazing. And I've surprised myself because I thought I would miss more about the live sport. I mean, I knew I wouldn't miss the media, but I thought <laughs> being up here, no, I, I really had had enough of that game, trust me. Uh, but, yeah, I thought I would miss sort of being at some live sporting events and... And I thought that I'd probably spend a lot of time watching sport on TV now that I've got more time. But, yeah, it just hasn't worked out that way. I think my first reaction was I'll I'll sort of take almost like a gap year where I I won't watch much sport and see how I feel. And, like, at the end of the year, I thought, well, I didn't really miss much at all. I mean, uh, it was 2016, so I watched the the Olympics. And, and again, just dipped in and out of, of... what I was interested in. Yeah, and look, the thing for me, as opposed to a lot of journalists and sports journalists that I've talked to and worked with, I'm, I never had the luxury of specialising in, in one sport. There was always, for most of my career, even when I was doing sort of rugby league on television or, or whatever, there was always still a requirement that I'd be able to talk intelligently to mm. whatever was happening in cricket, <laughs> AFL, netball, basketball. 
horse racing, the whole box and dice, and, and a lot of sports that I really wasn't interested in. But, you know, professionally, you, you have an obligation to just, know, well, well, I can't ignore that just because I'm not that keen on it. So, yeah, and I can remember the sort of Saturday nights with Sunday morning sports show coming up the next day, uh, you know, sitting flicking between every channel, what's happening in the AFL, what's happening in the A-League, what's happening in the, the rugby league, because you were just frightened something big would happen and you'd turn up on air the next day and, and not be aware of it. And, yeah, you know, I mean, a lot of people have much worse pressures in their jobs than that, but nevertheless, you don't realise what it's a pleasure it is to not do that until you stop. <laughs> 100% I completely agree when you stop covering a sport then you start watching it completely differently as well uh, you were a trailblazer though for women in sports media is that how you saw yourself I guess not at the time it's funny I think sometimes about the, the conversations I had with sports stars or you know just sporting personalities over the years where you'd talk to them about you know so if they just passed a milestone or, or did something like that. And they'd say, oh, I don't know, I'll think about that when I retire. And that's actually a real, well, it has been for me. It's a real thing. I thought, hey, they weren't kidding all those years ago because you do have time to, to look back and, and think about it. So, yeah, I guess now I kind of see it. But at the time, you're so busy, you know, if you want to use the trailblazing analogy, you're so busy just beating down the brush all around you that... You, you don't really have time to think about what is the significance of this. You're just trying to keep a job and keep your credibility and, and keep uh, some, you know, self-respect, all of those things. <laughs> it's all just, <laughs> well, it's true. And, you know, so you kind of, you know that people are saying that to you or you're, you're a trailblazer or whatever, but it's kind of, yeah, thanks, you know, but then you just have to keep on with the trailblazing. <laughs> Keep exactly. on the trailblazing. Well, yeah. in, in 2007, so, yeah, I guess though, in retrospect, yeah, go on. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. In, in 2007, though, when you penned your book, Where Do You Think You're Going, Lady, that was a real trailblazing book, and, and it spoke to many of those sort of firsts or pretty much firsts amongst them. What did, made you decide to document your experiences? Well, I actually got asked to do it. So I've, I've been, look, for all the, the one thing I do think when I look back on, on my career that, yeah, there was a lot of, just a lot of crap that didn't need to, to be there. But, well, I also just had some, some charmed moments and, and, you know, just downright luck. And, yeah, I, I got approached by Richard Walsh back in um, the, I don't know, sort of 2002 or somewhere 2003. I was I was back at the ABC at News Radio. I'm not really doing a very high-profile job or whatever, but he contacted me and asked me had I ever thought about doing a memoir of my time as a sports journalist. And, yeah, and I said, oh, yeah, I, I have, but I'll, I'll, wait, I'll do that when I retire sort of thing. And then... Everyone that I've talked to said, don't be crazy if someone's asking you to do a book, do it now, because there's no guarantee that when you're ready to write it that anyone wants to publish it. So I guess, you know, I took the, took the ball and ran with it, even though I felt it was a, a bit premature. And it is, it is funny because now I think I, I, it's funny I don't, you know, I don't, obviously don't go back and read my book. Someone borrowed it from me recently and, uh, you know, I suddenly realised, well, it stopped in sort of the, uh, 2006 or something mm, like that. Mm. And then, then I had that last little burst at uh, Grandstand, which where so much interesting 
stuff happened. And that was kind of a sort of an, just a sort of little late blossom in the career, which was heaps of fun. And you know, there were so many more interesting stories I could have told after those few years. But, but anyway, it's, uh, it's done. And, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, and I'm glad. I mean, people, when someone like you, and I know I've had Norma Glocklin uh, say it to me some years ago, and different women who are now in sports saying, oh, I read your book and, um, you know, it sort of it, it meant something. It, it helped in, in some sort of way, sort of put what they were going through in perspective. And, like, that's just awesome. Like, I didn't, mm. didn't really make any money out of the book, but that kind of thing is... I I sort of feel like well that was it was worth it then to put it all all down in uh, you know in a sort of documented in some way so that if somebody else's experience you know people can see that oh okay that's you know that's what she went through as well because I'm sure there's a lot of well we know there's a lot of common experience amongst women in sport because you and I have talked about it <laughs> women, women in sports journalism so is there a sequel on the cards. Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> Tell you what, I hated my life by the time I got to the end of that book. Like by the time I'd finished writing, because I'm one of those people that just writes way too much and then spent, you know, sort of several months trying to get it down to the, the mm. level, uh, to the, you know, the, the volume that they wanted. But, um, yeah, it was, yeah, I, I don't know. I just found it, I just found it a pretty exhausting experience. And I remember... Yeah, just sort of thinking at the end of it, if I have to read this thing one more time, <laughs> I, it was was worse than childbirth. It was like when it was over, thank God that's done. You know? <laughs> Except with childbirth, you went back again. Well, yeah, it is a rollicking ride, though, the, your book through what journalism looked like, particularly in the 80s, 90s and a little bit beyond that. When you reflect now on how much has changed since you first dipped your toe into that world, what thoughts go through your head? Oh, look, one thing that always always kind of makes me look back and, and think, what a ridiculous situation to be in. I remember... At one stage, this will give you an idea of, of how technology has made so much difference to being able to be in a studio and talk about sport or cover sport updates, sporting scores, etc. When I first started at ABC, one of the jobs they gave me was putting me on air during summer because the ABC on radio used to do quite a lot of Sheffield Shield mm. interstate cricket of various forms in those days. And during the sort of peak summer months they they had this idea for i think it only lasted one year i'm pretty sure that it didn't survive after that i wouldn't have survived much longer <laughs> that i had to sit in the studio of whatever program was going to air or you know sit nearby the studio and ring around every cricket ground and ask them what the score was <laughs> and write sort of write it down and then go in on air and read the score which at the time i thought yeah okay you know it's a clunky sort of thing but that's a good idea. Update everybody's uh, so they know what's happening around the around the ground, so to speak. But you think you could keep commentators off the damn phone in the phone box, and there's no mobile phones, so there'd be one number for the MCG, and I'd be ringing for like 15 minutes and just be engaged signal, engaged signal. And so you know, I have to go on air and either give a score that was half an hour old, which was cutting across their actual broadcast. <laughs> or, or just 
I think in the end, I just started saying, and if you get off the phone at the MCG, I'll tell you what the story is. If they ever get off the phone, I'll tell you what the story is there. But now that just seems such a ridiculous thing to be to be doing for a whole day, ringing cricket grounds and asking for scores so you can walk into the next room and read it into a microphone. And, yeah, but some of those were some pretty terrible days. Uh, modern technology has changed everything. We're chatting with Debbie Spillane on SEN 1170. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. Well, Deb, we have something in common. Both quite late entrance to the sports media game, but Debbie Splane, you had a whole lifetime before that. Tell us about your first ever career. Well, my first ever career. Well, I, I started off in, in the public service. Uh, I don't know whether that, though, but I sort of <laughs> left school. Left, no, I left school, wanted to be an actress, auditioned for NIDA, and, and I remember they said to me, oh, well, you know, you're okay, but, you know, if you really want it, you'll come back next year. And I was like, oh, of course I'll be back next year. And, of course, I didn't, which was they were totally correct in that sort of... I, after that, I discovered singing in bands, and so I was doing a lot of that, but eventually, I ended up working in record stores and owning my own record store. So that's what I was doing immediately before getting into media, as well as working in a very pure and only occasionally successful <laughs> club band sort of thing or pub and pub rock band. Remind me, Benji, was it? Well, that was one of them. There was another one called Bluey, which I thought was a terribly clever uh, take, uh, Aussie <laughs> For take a on Blondie. <laughs> All <Yeah>. right. <laughs> Uh, yes, but no one would have ever heard of any of them. So, yeah, there were several bands. Anyway, anyway being in bands, you just sort of, everything's constantly morphing from that band to this band to uh, so on. But, yeah, the, the record shop, I actually really enjoyed that. I mean, but now, again, wow, you know, that's as out of date as phoning cricket grounds to, to get the score over the phone, isn't it? Oh, Only I don't know. Vinyl's making a comeback. Yeah, I guess so, which is weird because CDs were just coming in towards the end of my time owning a record store and, and it all seemed very exciting at the time and now everything's going going the other direction again. But, yeah, it was... It, it was something I loved doing, but yeah, it would have been, a, I don't think it would have been a, a great life choice for a career. It was fun <laughs> while it lasted. Well, good good job you made a career in uh, in sports media, but your sports fandom, that started pretty early, didn't it? Was it with your aunt at the SCG? Yeah, well, my dad and my grandfather, well, all my uncles were all members of the SCG. And, and that only happened not because we were sort of really posh people that had membership of the SCG, but because my grandfather was a first grade rugby league player and apparently when they first opened up membership of the cricket ground, they offered it to first grade players and, and so on. And, and he he was offered a membership and, and took it and then it became, you know, the pass down through the pass down to your son, which was always interesting that some of my early experiences in sport were really segregated because I was fascinated by the fact that when we went to the cricket ground for the rugby league on the weekend that there was a next to where we sat in the ladies stand that there was a stand full of men and women were not allowed in there. (laughs) And so, but I used to sit with my aunt who was a, a keen rugby league. So it was the whole family would go. It was a big, was, I often describe it as almost like a bit of a church-like experience. It didn't matter who was playing. In those days, there would be, rather than the match of the round being on television, the match of the round was at the Sydney Cricket Ground. So that was kind of the showpiece game each week. And my grandfather and father both strongly believed that a proper fan 
doesn't have a tribal allegiance to any club that you go and watch the best games, but that shows that you're a true fan. So it's funny how that wow. that doesn't seem to be very widely held. And that was despite the fact that my grandfather, Captain West, he, I mean, yeah, he had a bit of a sentimental spot for West, but it, he didn't like the idea of people going to games with, you know, beanies and, and mm. it was it was a much more, um, they took it much more seriously, my father and grandfather. They would sit there very quietly. You just clapped when someone scored. It was, you know, they, they believed very strongly in appreciating the game. Oh, that's proper old school. I love it. And can you imagine <laughs> uh, just supporting every team at random that you, you go and watch now? It's it's literally almost unheard of. Uh, but your, your dad was, of course, also a keen sportsman. And uh, I recall a story that you told about umpiring for him uh, in, in cricket and your experiences there. It struck a chord with me because I flicked through that story again uh, last night when, when I knew that we'd be chatting. And we have a problem in Australia that one in five sports grounds still doesn't have appropriate female facilities. Uh, your first sticking point in your cricket umpiring job was exactly that, wasn't it? You couldn't do it because there was nowhere for you to change. Well, yeah, and I, I'm still not sure that that was actually a reasonable objection. I think <laughs> to, I think there were objections being looked for under the circumstance. So what happened was Dad was a uh, – he played Western Suburbs Districts cricket, like a grade uh, – not grade, the sort of club cricket, mm -hmm. uh, park cricket, so to speak. And so I they never had umpires and I was a useless scorer and Dad sort of suggested that – I think he'd heard that there was another woman – that had he heard of umpiring and he said why don't you study for your umpiring ticket because you know they're desperate for for cricket umpires so yeah and I, I did it and passed the exams and and got the qualification but then there was this oh where is she going to get changed and I just couldn't believe it, it was just like well I was wearing a black skirt and a white blouse and you know or I said well I'll just bring the I'll just wear those things to the ground and just put on the hat and coat before I go out on the field like how it, outrageous it of you <laughs> I know it was just but you know people were talking about I couldn't be in the sheds with the men it was just like why would I be in there like you know mm, like mm. I don't really not like you yeah anyway so that after a while that sold that I just said look I'll just you know there's no need for me to to actually get changed at the ground. I'll just put on the you know the umpiring accessories and <laughs> and away I go. But it was yeah I I thought it was actually a bit more like the, the dressing room kerfuffle in rugby league. It's almost like it was a good place to a good place to draw the line and and find something wrong. You know like the idea that mm. you couldn't have a woman reporting rugby league because that would mean going into the dressing room. Mm. You know and and therefore that and you couldn't possibly have that. So, yeah, I, but yeah, I, I take your point now about sporting facilities for women because, you know, I was just a, a one-off woman sort of as part of male competition, uh, just working as an umpire. But now where you have so many, so many more team sports that, that women are playing at, at grassroots level, then, it, yeah, it's crazy that, mm. that that should still be a problem. Gave, gave you a foray into that world, which was probably good preparation for what came later. But tell me, how did you transition into a, a sports journalism career? Well, while I was working in the record shop, uh, I, you know, used to... It was funny. My life's always been sort of a flip of music or sport. And so while I was working in the record shop, I would, you know, I'd be, get the newspaper every day and read the sports section blow by blow. And 
the time, 2GB Sydney had these sort of big ads running in the sports section saying they were looking for someone different as a sports commentator. They wanted a new a new voice as a sports commentator. And, and that, it had been something that I, I really wanted to do. I mean, I remember saying to a vocational guidance person once, you know, at school, they used to send you to see the vocational guidance people and, and him saying, well, you know, your English marks and your writing and stuff suggest journalism. And I said, yeah, look, I'd really like to do sports journalism. And he just said, he said to me, don't be silly. They don't have women do that. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, when I saw this ad, I thought, well, if you really want something different, and that was the way the ad was, was phrased, well, then have a woman, <laughs> you know. So, and he had to send in a cassette tape of you talking about sport, and, and I did all of that. And it was quite a long, and it, they sort of ran it, it was quite clever. It was called Sports Talent Search. They ran it as a promotion and as a job vacancy. So they did actually have a job to offer at the end, mm-hmm. but it was kind of all sort of um, promoted pretty well. And, you know, I didn't win, but uh, I was runner up. And, and because I was the only woman that made the finals, I think there was a final of eight or nine people. I'm not even sure now. I know David Middleton was one of the others and he went on to have a pretty mm. big career, but they, um, John Harker ended up winning it. So they started, they said to me, oh, do you want to have a couple couple of minutes a week on our Saturday morning sports show giving the woman's view? And I remember at the time <laughs> saying to them, not if it has to be the woman, I'll give you my view, but like I just, I, I remember saying to them, so who's got the man's view? You know, they had, at the time they had Hartley oh, Peters. They had Hartley and Peters on air together all weekend arguing with each other. And I said, which one of them is the men's view? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so beautifully patronising. <laughs> yes. So, but at least, yeah, I did. I, you know, don't even know what they called it now, but it wasn't the women's view. So I just, yeah, started from there. And then ABC ran, um, they were advertising for a woman. And, and you know, I, I ran into someone from ABC who said to me, oh, you know, um, you should put in for that, that job, you know, the words out that they're looking for a woman sports commentator because they'd never hired one. So, and yeah, so I applied for the, the job and the fact that I had done two minutes on air for, uh, you know, several months gave me sort of so much more experience than any other woman who applied. <laughs> so that's how grim it was. But yeah, and you know, I copped it for, you know, I remember guys that I was working with were saying to me, oh, there were men who applied for that job who'd been calling the races in the country and they were football callers and they were just, they'd done this and they'd done that. And like, I know that that's a, I feel sorry for those people, but on the other hand, if you were going to wait for a woman to apply for a job who'd been the course, you know, the race caller at, at country course or, or been calling the, the footy <laughs> in Darwin or something like that. It's just, you know, in those days, that was just never going to happen. Someone had to, and uh, you know, the affirmative, uh, the affirmative action policy was ABC Sport were told they, it was high time. They were one of the only departments that didn't have a woman on air. And so that was me. Certainly was. Debbie Spillane developed a stellar career in sports journalism. Stay with us. You're listening to Trailblazers. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. Well, we're chatting to Debbie Spillane, who started at uh, 2GB, went on to the ABC. But, uh, Deb, your opportunities weren't all in sport, were they? No, again, very lucky that I think, well, <laughs> in a way, it's it's lucky in the sense that I, w- I was at Today FM and I took time off to have my second daughter. It wasn't maternity leave, that, that wasn't a thing at the time, but I had, um, I had 
holidays and took nine weeks holidays and managed to lose my job uh, while I was having the baby. <laughs> oh, well done, you. Yeah. So, <laughs> yes, I know. There was a lot of it going around in those days. But And then I just thought, oh, I want to do something different now. And um, my husband at the time was a radio announcer who was, you know, a jock, uh, a music jock. And because I'd always loved music as well, I thought, well, you know, I'd, I'd like to have a go at, um, at sort of, you know, playing the music and chatting in between songs or, you know, or whatever. So I kind of went to Newcastle, ended up on air there and then came back. And luckily, uh, I think Andrew Denton got me on uh, Live and Sweaty. And that kind of, even though I was doing sport on that, it was it was a much wider audience than mm. sport. And then I ended up on Triple J um, doing Drive Time with Ian Rogerson. And we had, I think three years or thereabouts as hard coffee and that was that was awesome that was just such a such a fun time in my career mm. and I think I was I think I went back and while I was doing that then I got a second stint doing sideline eye on the rugby league because ABC television got me back in the in the mid 90s I had been doing it in the 80s and yeah so that was yeah definitely heaps of fun and and uh, and easily the it's, it's I always disappoint people because whenever they say oh you know who's who was the biggest thrill to interview and they always expect it to be a sportsman but I've got to say Paul McCartney and <laughs> it's, uh, that was definitely an, op- an opportunity that I never thought that I'd get and it just materialized at, at Triple J so there's there's some wonderful memories from those times and you know and and occasionally you know sport used to creep into it which was funny because Ian was the least interested in sport of just about anyone I'd ever worked with. And he would, in fact, rip the sports section out of the Herald and stick it in the bin, like not deliberately to offend me, but because that's what he'd always done. And then he would stick his used paper coffee cups in on top. So I'd come in and and I'd try to fish the sports section out of the bin and have all these coffee drips all over it. And it was, uh, but every now and then I'd get really excited about something that had happened in sport. And uh, and we would incorporate it in the program. And I remember one time I'd seen a, an NBL game that had such an exciting finish that I couldn't stop talking about it because I'd just woken up in the middle of the night and done that sort of uh just put the TV on and caught all this sort of overtime or whatever. And, and I was telling him about it on air. And he and the producer managed to ring Andrew Gaze and get him on air oh, somehow. Wow. And, and and Ian just said to me, uh, Ian just said to Andrew, Andrew, mate, she won't stop talking about basketball. Will you have a word with her? <laughs> oh, that's absolute gold. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so we did have some fun uh, with sporting topics. But, yeah, most, most days it wasn't. But at the, as I said, at the same time, I was writing a sports column for the Sydney oh, – sorry, for the Sun Herald. Sun Herald, mm. And – and doing some and live and sweaty as well. So there were times when when I didn't when it wasn't my main job, but I guess I always had sort of a, a foot in the in you know in that field as well. Mm. Uh, well, you mentioned the rugby league sideline beat for the ABC, and I have to tell you, I was chatting to a friend earlier today and said, "Got to go. I'm off to uh, to work. I'm interviewing Debbie Spillane." And he said, "Oh, wasn't she the first to be able to go into the dressing rooms?" And I thought, "Really? Is that still everybody's memory? <laughs> it, people spend an inordinate amount of time uh, focusing on that, and uh, in the end, you never saw a Willie, did you?" <laughs> oh look, I'm sure there were some in the uh, in the landscape generally, but I was definitely not not there to check them out. Well, more Many to the point, you didn't want to see one. <laughs> 
no, no, that that was right. But I always used to say the the thing that fascinates me most is that that was really the last thing that I wanted or needed when I was uh, mm. in a dressing room. In fact, I would rather not be in a dressing room, but in those days, that was where they had the post-match press conference. So I also didn't want to say, well, that's part of the job that I can't do. Uh, anyway, that it just became such a such a huge issue, which, you know, when just, yeah, like I always used to say, I, you know, what, I built my whole career around the chance of seeing naked men, yeah, that, that only a man could possibly <laughs> think that. But the thing was, it was the men were the ones who would always ask me, I swear, men would say so, you know, who's, you know, who's well endowed and all that. So I would go, I don't know, I'm not walking around compared. I mean, it was just like, that's what they wanted to know. So it kind of says, see, I don't, we don't think like you sometimes. Oh, it's mental, isn't it? Uh, you focused on so many different sports and, and had to really have that uh, general knowledge of many different sports events and tournaments. Did you have a favourite? At different times. It's funny, I obviously when I was a, a, a little kid, rugby league was like it was probably the only sport that I, I really knew, but then I became obsessed with cricket and did the umpiring and, and sort of ended up going to qualifying for grade cricket, doing one season and that and you know in those days that was it cricket always loved horse racing my grandfather used to take me to the uh to the races sometimes and you know, I, I always loved horses and so horse racing was a big thing so i weirdly enough now that now that i start answering this question you know i was talking about they asked the 2gb audition process involved you know me sending in a cassette that where i had to talk about sport and i think they that was the question that they asked what's your favorite sporting event and why and I was just sort of saying, well, it just depends uh, on what's happening. You know, when there's a great racehorse, then racing is, is what I love. And, you know, in recent years, tennis has been one of my great loves because I just think Roger Federer is probably the, the greatest sports star of my lifetime. Mm -hmm. and, and I just really enjoy watching him play. And so tennis, there have been times in my life when I've loved tennis and then I get bored with it and haven't watched it. And, I, you know, went through a stage. And luckily, I became an Arsenal fan sort of in 2001. And there were the, just those amazing years mm -hmm. where, you know, I'd be up in the, the, the Invincibles. I, I, I think I watched just about every one of those games getting up in the middle of the night and, and because, you know, they were just beautiful to watch. And Nice timing to become so a gooner. Sorry? Nice timing to become a gooner. Well, yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't because they were winning at the time. And in fact, I think the year that I followed them was the year that I, I'm always bad with actual what year was what, but I know that there was a year where Wenger, I think they got to, to Christmas undefeated and he said he thought they would go the rest of the year unbeaten and then everything just fell apart in the new year. And that was around about when I started following him, but they did, they did regroup. See, I was at news radio and, and I was doing sport on the, the breakfast show and, and one of our sources was BBC. And I used to just listen to these wonderful interviews and post-match uh, stuff with the various managers. And the reason I became a gooner was I just, I just loved Arsene Wenger's style. You know, I just, just hearing him, I, you know, I didn't even know what he looked like originally. And mm. I can remember just being fascinated by the way he handled questions and, you know, the fact that he was clearly answering in a, uh, a second language. And I used to think, wow, so articulate, you know, and mm. yeah. And then I started watching Arsenal and I'd always thought of, I guess because I'd grown up 
you know, the only soccer that was on TV here was, you know, FA Cup final or whatever. And every time it'd be the middle of the night. And, you know, in theory, it sounds really exciting having a, you know, a club from some lower division against some giant killing team. But of course, now I realise, of course, they were always horrible games, really, because some poor club would be parking the bus desperately, hoping to, you know, to hold off the firepower of a Man United or a Liverpool or something. So, but yeah, and I, I just always felt disappointed when I watched the big games. And then <laughs> I like, well, I, you know, to, that was what was on. And then, then I, I remember hearing all the lead up to, I think, Wenger and, and uh, um, Sir Alex Ferguson were, were at sort of loggerheads at the time. And there was this amazing sort of round of sledging off the field between, uh, you know, in, in press conferences between the two of them. And that was, I guess, you know, the drama of that mm. that got me in. And I watched, that was the first game I, I watched of the Premier League, I think, was Arsenal-Manchester United, just to see how all this sort of tension and personal feuding played out. And, yeah, and, and that was it. I thought, OK, now I can see what people see in this yep. game. That was amazing. Yeah, halcyon years in uh, in the Premier League for sure. Uh, yeah, how, how so, about, I mean, you know. For your own covering of sport, did you ever cover one that you had no idea about? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to remember. Look, I... There's some sports that I, I called badminton at, at the Commonwealth Games in 1986. And look, to be fair, when I say I had no idea about it, of course, obviously, when I found out that I had to cover badminton, tried to, you know, learn whatever I could. And I think... Madly I studying. I <laughs> yeah. And I covered an Australian championship before the, the Commonwealth Games so that I had some idea and... You know, I've done table tennis, which, yeah, I've played table tennis, but, you know, to, to put me as a, a table tennis commentator, ice skating was the very first commentary for television that I did. And, yeah, and that was, you know, again, you just have to try. And, you know, the ABC's attitude to commentary is good in a way. Be, you know, they will always put you with someone who's got the, the expertise to be able to analyse what's happening. And if you concentrate on kind of, keeping the audience informed, you know, being the, the mediator almost between the expert and the audience, then you can do it. But, yeah, there, it's always – I did diving at the at the um, 84 Olympics and uh, and I'd never never been to a diving meet. I mean, I, I'd been given lots of VHSs mm. to study up, but, yeah, it was kind of weird to be at the diving telling Australia what was happening at diving when, when it was the first time I'd ever been to a diving event. Well, Debbie Spillane had a huge amount of experience behind the mic, but also some gigs away from the media room. Next up, we hear more about how she moved into media at the Bulldogs. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. So, Debbie Spillane, after so much experience actually broadcasting sport, how did you end up doing rugby league media? Well, it was came straight off the back of my time at, at Triple J. So I I was on air at Triple J. I remember Lynn Anderson contacted me from from the Bulldog. I remember Peter Moore rang me. He'd he'd always been very good to me. Um, you know, the long time secretary or what would these days be the CEO of, of the Bulldogs. And because you know, I had been a season ticket holder at the Bulldogs before I went into the media, and he soon figured that out and uh yeah he was but he was always good and I remember he rang me uh quite a few times to kind of just chat about football even when I wasn't working as a as a rugby league reporter and he made sure that I'd, I'd met his daughter Lynn who was marketing manager 
at, at the Bulldogs. And then during the Super League era, the Bull, apparently every club was told they needed to hire a media manager. And Bullfrog had left, Peter Moore had left the club, or retired. Lynn rang me and asked me, would I, could I write the job specs? because she didn't really know what, what a media manager would do. And I had been a media man, manager for the Sydney Kings, so I kind of put a little paper together of, of what sort of things I thought a media manager should be doing. And then she got back to me and said, well, I, you know, how about you then? Because you seem to have a good idea of what to do. She said she would come in and, and meet me to have a chat at Triple J. And I remember I was in my office at Triple J and I got a message from the front desk. There's an old man here to see you. Yeah, the foyer at the time had sort of Reg Mombasa yep. uh, decor <laughs> everywhere and, and, and uh, pinball machines and funny looking couches and, you know, corrugated iron Super around the wall. Yeah. yeah, really funky. And I sort of walked out to the foyer and he was Peter Moore, you know, sort of looking very much like a, an old footy club president standing in this funny... <laughs> and a fish out of water. And he, <laughs> yeah, and he said to me, I heard you were having a meeting with Lynn and I didn't want to miss out on that. And so, yeah, he sort of came along to talk me into to um, you know joining the club and saying that, he, you know, he would like me to take the job. And I always remember he was famous for his recruiting skills and it was only, uh, I don't know, a few months after my mum had died and my mum had been a mad Bulldogs fan. And I remember Peter saying to me at one stage in this sort of really sort of persuasive, gentle voice, imagine how proud your mum would be. And I thought, God, oh, you're good, Oh, nice one. And I thought, no wonder he signed so many players. Yeah, it was, it was, I thought I, the funny thing was, I remember thinking, I'll learn so much more about football by being at a, at a rugby league. That was what I remember thinking. I need to understand more and then I'll be a better journalist. And the weird thing was, apart from a short stint at Rugby League Week, probably three or four years later, I don't think I ever worked on Rugby League again. Well, in the early part of your career, it was predominantly men's sport that was being broadcast. And with the exception of probably Com Games and, and Olympic Games, there wasn't too much else uh, going on in the women's sphere. That has changed so much. How do you think the evolution has gone? Where do, where do you think it's at? I don't know. I spent a lot of time thinking about this and I think it was really promising for a while. It's not just in sport. At the moment, there's a really big pushback against women. I think at the moment, there's kind of a political appetite, doking, a little bit of resentment and this, you would have, we've all heard the discussions like, so women's sport is getting more chances but there's an awful backlash as well. Like, I, I just for the life of me can't understand the online carry-on from men about, oh, why are women playing this sport or, you know, the, the absolute bitching and griping about women's cricket or women's AFL and stuff like that. You know, if you don't like it, don't watch it. I think in the media, I don't know where it's going in terms of women in in the media because the media itself is in a real state of flux, as I'm sure I, I don't have to tell you. I mean, you know, outlets and types of media that were very profitable aren't as much anymore so it's hard to measure where women are in the media because the media itself is a bit of a mess there's a lot more women now doing sport which is great I'm not not sure whether they're getting ahead though in terms of sport itself I think what the really encouraging thing is I think some sports and you know I may be wrong but from my perspective the first sport that I thought got it was cricket with women's 
sport and that idea that if you at least start making the players professional, the standards improved. So many women, if they've played a sport, they've got more affinity for it. So you, you're growing your, your grassroots, building a whole support base and, and a talent base. And it's not just talent base in terms of on field, but you can start thinking about women it makes it easy for women to get into sports administration if they've got some, some actual background in, in mm-hmm. those kinds of sports, into coaching. I think, I think that's where the push has come from. That I mm. think almost like the marketing folks have realised that, hey, you know what, there's a whole 50% of the population that kind of like us even though we've <laughs> never done really much to support it. And so I, I think that's where a lot of the... And, and you know, once, once the ball started rolling with Cricket Australia putting some money in, and, yeah, there's lots of arguments that everyone could do more. Of course they could, but... But I think after that, all the other team sports started working harder at, you know, sort of the AFLW and, and the Women's Rugby League. And, and you know, once they realised there's actually a, a market there for everything, you know, for the gear, for the, for the tickets, for, you know, I think that's where, I think that's where it's come from. And, and I, I just get so angry with men that can't say, oh, you know, why, why should we give them money? They're not earning the same kind of money as, as the men or whatever. It's just like, hey, do you want your sport to grow? And, and ignoring 50% of the, the population just doesn't even make sense. But uh, you intrigued me with something there, that the idea of uh, mums as examples and role models. Did either of your daughters follow you into either sport fandom or broadcasting? No, not to that extent. Again, they've been through uh, various stages uh my my oldest daughter not that much into to sport these days but you know there were times when when she was my youngest daughter is is very into the nba l and my granddaughter an nba fanatic as well so there's there's still a bit of that but yeah uh and well jen my oldest daughter did some broadcasting at triple j not sport just uh music um, music announcing. So, yes, from that point of view, she, she was interested in the broadcasting side of things but ended up going in another direction. Yeah, there's, there's no real sports fanatics in the family other than two very solid N- NBA supporters. And, and I think Celeste goes to the occasional NBL game as well. Well, they picked a good sport to follow. It's very exciting and it's doing phenomenally uh, well. But I, I wonder if perhaps they were like my kids who got dragged to so much sport that they don't watch it. They don't mind playing it, but they uh, <laughs> they don't sit and, and watch it in the same way that, that I do, certainly. Uh, Deb, before we let you go, I do have to ask you, after so many different experiences, it, it's not possible for a journey starting out now to emulate or, or replicate the experiences you've had because the the sport media landscape has changed so much but if you had to give a journo starting out now a piece of advice what would it be oh well apart from the usual shows don't um <laughs> you know i don't know exactly what to say to people because i always said and look you know, i kind of fluked my my way in and it's really hard to tell people how to <laughs> fluke something but yeah you other than that, you've got to be persistent and so many young, particularly young girls that I've spoken to, have got an idea of a specific sport that they they want to be involved in covering that. And you know, the only thing I always say is, well, you know, you can't, you can't just say this is what I want to do and be a sports journalist. You've really got to be prepared. If they send you the tiddlywinks, then sound like you love tiddlywinks and make sure you know everything <laughs> about it. Because you know, there's no luxury of just saying, oh well, I've, I'm, I want to do sport, but only this one or or that one. Grab and and go with whatever opportunity you can get. But you know, be be as good a multitasker as you can. I think these days, because there's 
you know, so much just online and, you know, all the kind of things that I kind of just left as it was all podcasting and all of, we were doing that sort of stuff, podcasting, streaming, all that sort of thing. But all that, knowing how to do all of that sort of thing now is, is so much more important than, you know, social media and all the rest of it. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's like I said, it's a tough field. Like if you were in the media for 30-odd years like I was, you can see how it's evolving at the moment and it's, it's causing, you know, it's a bit like the Hunger Game vibes about, <laughs> about being in the media at the moment because so much is being cut, you know, so a hard thing to go into and you, you really have to be prepared to have a pretty rocky ride. And that's where I was so lucky to... To really not, it was a time at least when the media was thriving when I started out. We're, mm. we're now at a time where media is not thriving and, and that makes every, the degree of difficulty just goes up astronomically given that. However, you managed to create many wonderful memories. Debbie Spillane, a true trailblazer, thank you for sharing some of your story with us today. Lovely to chat again, Steph.